And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Excuse me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Praise be to God for these words. Good evening, everybody. Am I turned on? Yes, that's good. Um, I think we'll just pray first, shall we? Such a familiar passage, this um, Yeah, Father, I think my prayer for us is that, Father, you would come by your Holy Spirit um, and you would take these wonderfully, marvelously familiar words of our Lord Jesus Christ and that you would speak to us personally and individually, that you would do that by your Holy Spirit, that you would come and move among us. That almost irrespective of what I say, you would speak to us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I was preparing this evening, I realized that what, what the Lord was laying on my heart was that I would just encourage us to pray. That I would exhort us to pray. And I should say really quickly, that that's not because I've got it sussed, but because I want to share with you what I believe we're being asked to do when we respond to Jesus's words, when you pray. So I'm going to look at, first of all, what I'd like to do is to look at why Jesus even addresses prayer and how his words guide our prayer. And finally, a reminder that above all, this is a prayer of discipleship. So the minute we speak of a prayer, even the Lord's Prayer, we speak of a set of words, a formula perhaps, a right, wrong way to do something. We speak of a tone of voice, um, a very prayerful tone of voice. You know what? Set prayers have their place, and they are a wonderful part of our liturgical life, as indeed is the Lord's Prayer. But, and it's a really important but, if all we know of the Lord's Prayer, all we understand of it is that they're really lovely words that are used the world over by all denominations in all languages, 
then we lose its radical nature. And more importantly, we lose the context in which it was first taught. And the way it leads us into a new way of living our daily lives. So let's start with why. There's this crowd on a hillside near the start of Jesus' public ministry. And they are among the first to hear about this new kingdom of God. We've been hearing about this week by week in the Sermon on the Mount. That they could be part of. Now some of them... Um, are his disciples already. Some of them are a crowd of followers and some of them may well have been disciples of John and present at Jesus' baptism and heard the father's affirmation of his son. Thou art my beloved son, with thee I'm well pleased. Perhaps they've already begun to wonder who this teacher was. His speech is like a breath of fresh air. He talks to the crowd as friends, and yet with an incredible authority. He takes Old Testament laws and gives them this revolutionary new meaning. Do not murder. Don't even harbor anger. Don't be adulterous. Don't even look with lust. Give generously. Don't brag about it. Fasting is important, but don't make a big song and dance about it. And now, midway through the sermon... He addresses one of the most important aspects of their normal daily life, prayer. This is familiar. They do it. In fact, some of the crowd might be a bit relieved. Oh, well, this is good. We're on solid ground here. We pray at least three times a day. And then Jesus goes on, and I'm just going to recap on a couple of verses that Chris spoke about last, no, a couple of weeks ago. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. You can almost feel the shock running through the crowd, but this is what we've always done. We need to show the world how important God is. We need to show one another how much we value prayer, how important it is in our lives. But no, Jesus speaks of a different way, a way of praying that is intimate, and personal and between them and God. He goes on to say, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. This is a way of praying that glorifies God and not themselves, that's private, unobserved. A way of praying that addresses God as father, very simple, direct. Jesus hasn't finished, not by a long way. Let's look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Wow, that's a bit harsh. I mean, how often have I babbled away at God? Oh God, please hear me. I really, really, really need you to hear me this time. Oh God, please, please listen to me. Oh, please hear me. Actually, Jesus does not condemn our heartfelt pleas. He longs for us to pour our hearts out before him, unobserved, privately. So what does Jesus mean? Well, we need to understand that the pagans had a load of gods, and therefore their prayers were very, very, very long. It's actually quite tricky keeping a lot of gods happy. Um, Do you remember Paul's missionary journey in Antioch? There was even a statue to an unknown God, so we pray to that unknown God as well. I mean, it makes the prayer very long. Um, 
But the challenge was really to the hypocrites, to we later discover in Matthew, he's referring to the scribes and Pharisees who were doing the same as the pagans. But they went on and on enjoying the sound of their own voices and making sure God heard them. But still, why was Jesus so challenging? Let's look at verse 8. Do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Whoa. So there's a bit of a showstopper. Shall I just quit praying now? I mean, God knows what I need. He's got the list. I'll just sit back and wait. Yeah? Why? Because Jesus wants us to pray in a completely different way. To turn the focus upside down into an inner transformation that places God at the very heart of our prayer life. That emerges from a complete refocus away from our needs to God's provision and our dependence on that provision. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We read just a few verses on and all these things will be given to you as well. This was radical. We use words like radical and countercultural quite loosely. But perhaps it is hard for us to imagine, you know, sitting here now, we know the full salvation story. But those on that Judean hillside were hearing for the first time the possibility of a personal relationship with God. That God is Father can be addressed as Father. They're being asked to change generations of prayer, ritual and tradition. What does it feel like for us, perhaps at work, at uni, with family, with friends? To swim against the tide. If you've ever tried swimming in a big ocean against a strong incoming tide, you know it's actually quite a challenge. I've done it once. wasn't very easy. It can be hard. You need a few others swimming along with you. But it can also be quite exciting. It gives life and energy and purpose. It confronts the status quo. So when Jesus speaks of prayer, he speaks of a completely new way of coming before God. He speaks of God's love for us personally, individually, as his children. Whenever you pray, Jesus says, remember that your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows your need. He knows my need. God, the creator who made heaven and earth, put the galaxies in the heavens, the one who made you and me in his image, knows us personally, individually. He formed us in our mother's womb, and what are we fearfully and wonderfully made? How can that knowledge change the way we pray? I would suggest it changes everything. It redirects our prayers towards God himself. It takes the pressure of petition. It leads us and draws us into wonder and gratitude of who God is. I've, in the past year or so, felt really challenged about the need to simply declare to God the wonders of who he is, to declare 
his mighty power and otherness, to praise him for his grace and mercy, to simply worship him in prayer. When we come before a God who knows our needs, we come before him with confidence, as children who absolutely know that we're safe in his hands. We place ourselves before him as completely dependent on his grace and mercy. We see afresh that we need him. Very truly I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. That's in John 5. Now, if Jesus can position himself in such dependence, surely so must we. Jesus' whole ministry pointed to his father. So must we. So let me try to encourage us how we might apply this as we go through, fairly briefly, through these next verses. Jesus was not simply teaching us to pray. I believe he was teaching that group on the hillside and us a new way of living, not just praying, a new way of living Can you imagine a way of life that is constantly declaring to our Father God just how amazing he is when we say, our Father, Jesus the Son, is teaching us how to be children of his heavenly Father. When we say, our Father, we're aligning ourselves to the Son. We are in declaring our intention to live as his disciples. Eddie alluded to this earlier, and I do just want to say, and I think it's very important perhaps for some of us specifically, some of us may have a problem with the concept of a father who really knows us and loves us, knows our needs. It's a tricky business making human comparisons with God himself. So let's get this the right way round. We never compare our earthly fathers to our heavenly father, however good or bad they are or were. They will all fall short, and some much more than others. It is our father God who sets the standard, and God is love. When we say, our Father, hallowed is your name, can we simply kneel before him, imperfect as we are, and just say to him, you are holy God. We want to honour you with our lives. We long for others to see just how holy you are, how wonderful you are. We want to be holy in all areas of our lives. And why? so that we can give you all the glory. God's holiness is our focus. Let's move on to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what are we being called to pray for here? This is a wonderful declaration of God's kingdom is already here. I really like the way, Ali, we were doing the songs like that. It was really lovely. Um, That he dwells with us through his son. That we long to see his will in the world. 
But you know, when we pray that God's kingdom comes and his will be done, we're not actually asking for more of his kingdom or more of his will because he's done that. It's done. He's done it in Jesus. It's finished. It's complete. What we're actually saying is, Lord, give me the grace to live out that kingdom life. Give me the grace to actually live out your will in my workplace, my neighborhood, my university, my family, dare I say, the church family, as we give thanks for God's kingdom here on earth, as we declare his will already done in Jesus. What are we doing? We're declaring history in the making. We're also declaring that God is continuing his work of salvation among us. This is a prayer of radical discipleship. It's a prayer that brings God all the glory. Father God, we want to declare your purposes among the nations. Isn't that what we want to do? Yes, amen to that. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so get up in the morning. We go about our daily lives. Lord, we want to thank you for your provision, however much or little we have, we want to thank you for all that you provide. We want to say to you that we know all things come from you. We want to declare before you that it is in you and you alone that we live and move and have our being. We want to thank you for the way you provide day after day. And we want to declare to those around us that you are provider God. Even if today, Lord, that provision feels very limited, we still depend on you. When we come before God trusting that he can supply all our needs in Christ Jesus, something amazing happens. Kingdom resources get released and God is able to use us all of us, ordinary people, as channels of his kingdom purposes. Just think about the times that God has prompted you to be a sovereign provider for someone else's needs with a meal, with some funding, with a text, with a phone call. When we humble ourselves as his children, depending on him, giving him the glory, we also become channels of his provision for those around us. I mean, isn't that great? That's the way it works. When God gets the glory, we are channels of his provision. Now, we're going to do verses 12, 14 and 15 together. These are challenging. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then we go on to 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, our Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is... So, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, John the Baptist declared... 
Why am I saying that? Because repentance and forgiveness are at the very heart of Jesus' ministry. They're at the heart of salvation. The heart of salvation history, but also at the heart of the way we, as his disciples, are called to love one another. Repentance and God's forgiveness were not new concepts to those listening on the hillside in Judea, but... This was, as we have forgiven our debtors. That was radical. Forgiveness of sins or moral debts for the Jews was a complicated process involving negotiation. Even Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, so how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Seventy times seven, says Jesus. In other words, you forgive. That's the bottom line. That's where it stops. Forgiveness in the kingdom of God is a reflection of how much we grasp the huge debt we owe to God in sending us Jesus, a debt that's been paid in the blood of Jesus on the cross. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel message. Forgiveness is a mark of discipleship. And that's why 14 and 15 are potentially, they're really tricky, but they're really important. Let's just take a minute to consider. And as I just speak about this, I do really want to recognize how some of us have been wronged in different ways, different times of our lives. And it's hard and it's painful. The whole thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is to declare to us a new way of living. It's a lifestyle manifesto. Jesus, at this point, he hasn't died, been buried and risen again. The tenets of faith, the creed, will come later. This is about how we obey the great commandment to love God and love our neighbor. This is about seeking God's righteousness rather than our own rights. And the forgiveness that Jesus is referring to here is that daily living life forgiveness that Jesus modeled on the cross. What did Jesus say as he died? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Surely we can do no less. So whilst God does not push us away, And we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we do not forgive our brother or sister, we separate ourselves. We are no longer living according to the kingdom of God Jesus is proclaiming and that he died for. We push ourselves away from experiencing God's mercy and receiving his forgiveness. And we cannot receive that forgiveness because we have a God of justice. Forgiveness is not about suddenly, you know, becoming best buddies with those who have hurt us. It's about being able in prayer, by God's grace, to draw a line under the hurt to lay it at the foot of the cross. And I'm sure different ones of us know what I'm talking about here. And so as we again think about this prayer 
and refocus it on God rather than ourselves. Let's be praising God for his mercy, for his wonderful mercy that gives us the will and the ability to forgive as we have been forgiven. And then verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, the whole Sermon on the Mount, and thus this manner of prayer, is given to disciple us. But it also speaks of the reality of Jesus' experience here on earth. And it's, it's good to remember that. Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, and after that, what did he do? Went into the desert, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And as he finished, what happened? Satan tempted him. Satan tempted Jesus to cast aside, in effect, his absolute dependence on the power and authority of God. It happens to us all the time. It happens to me, I'm sure it happens to you. Something goes wrong, or we're swimming along life really, really nicely. And instead of declaring God's faithfulness in that situation, we find ourselves abandoning God and just kind of carrying on, taking back control of our lives. We need God. We depend on God to deliver us from the evil one, to deliver us from the ordinary, everyday tendencies to stop depending on him. And so again, when we turn the focus back to God, our Father, on whom we are totally dependent, we pray, we declare, Father God, you have triumphed over evil, and in your name, Jesus, so can we. Do you remember the wonderful words in Hebrews 4? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. You know, Jesus knows all about temptation. He's on our side. He's got us covered. So, as we begin to draw to a close, I really, it, it, it feels like, Jesus is not just teaching us to pray. He's teaching us how to live a life of daily discipleship. He's teaching us that God rules and reigns forever. And I'd like to end simply by saying that I think something really wonderful can happen when we consistently give God the glory, turning our prayer life away from ourselves and back to God. I'm still finding out how wonderful it can be and I will till the day I die because we never fully get there and we need to encourage each other. We often talk about how prayer is difficult and I think the discipline of prayer is hard. In fact, the act of finding the right time and place to pray is a challenge But once we've got that sorted, it's like the rest of the Christian life. It has its ups and downs, mountaintops and valleys. 
That's normal. The really difficult bit is getting into a rhythm of prayer. So here's a challenge for us. Could I ask you, please, to talk to one or two trusted Christian friends this week, actually this week, and find out when they pray, how they pray, what they use to pray, where they pray. It'll be different for each of us. There's no right or wrong. But as we do this, I believe we're going to discover three things. Number one, we're not alone. Hey-ho. Many of us struggle with finding time to pray. Number two, the sharing of that struggle will help to hold us accountable to prayer. Number three, our prayer life will get a new lease on life because we will have got good ideas from other people and we will also be a little bit more accountable. So when Jesus said, when you pray, it wasn't an optional extra. And when we pray according to the pattern Jesus sets out, we begin that internal shift that Jesus is seeking. Our prayers will focus on giving God glory. And as we give God glory, what happens? We change. Our hopes and dreams come into line with God's purposes. And our behavior aligns itself with God's will. So, and when that happens, what happens to our relationships? I truly believe that when, when we start praying, really focusing on God to change us, it softens our heart and we will learn to love one another as he loves us. Like us, those followers on that hillside um, knew that Jesus was calling them to a radical way of understanding the great commandment. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as Christians, those who want to follow Jesus, we're called first to love God and out of that to love our neighbor. When you pray, Jesus says, give God, all the glory, put your trust in him, honour him, worship him, for he is worthy, and this your Father knows all your needs before you ask. Amen.